It's a mictum of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. We're going back to the cave is what that means. This anything but dull cave adullam where David has sought temporal refuge from the relentless pursuit of King Saul. Now before we get to that, you may be wondering what this sermon title is all about. A step between me and death. Well, I'll show you what this means. Please turn with me to the book of First Samuel. First Samuel. We're going to be looking at chapter 20. First Samuel chapter 20. This tells of a conversation between David and Saul's son, Jonathan. Now, these two had a very unique relationship. They, they cared very deeply for one another. They were dear friends. First, first Samuel 21 through 3. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he is seeking my life? Remember now, this conversation is post-Saul attempting to take David's life on at least four separate occasions. First, trying to pin him to a wall with a spear in chapter 18. Second, trying to have him killed at the hands of the Philistines, still chapter 18. Third, Saul's trying to uh, pin David to the wall for the second time with a spear in chapter 19, after making a sacred vow to Jonathan that David would surely not be put to death. Finally, Saul's sending messengers to kill David, which would have happened if it weren't for his daughter, David's wife, alerting him, also in chapter 19. Now, here in chapter 20, verse 2, we, see, uh, we again see sweet, yet some might say naive or even ignorant Jonathan saying to David, my dad doesn't want to kill you. Far from it, he says. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without revealing it in my ear. So why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Yet David swore again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your sight. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But look at these words now. Verse 3. Truly, as Yahweh lives and your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. There is hardly a step between me and death. A step between me and death? What does this mean? Well, it means that David viewed his physical demise, his perishing from this earth, the destruction of his mortal body as both inevitable and imminent. David feels there's a a high probability that his death could occur at literally any moment, even as he stands there talking to Jonathan. The, The next breath, The very next step taken by David, the son of Jesse, could very well be his last step. Listen, Jonathan, don't don't tell me your dad's not going to kill me the moment he sees me. I killed all those Philistines when when his plan was that they were supposed to kill me. Two two times he, he hurled a spear at me. All I was doing was playing a harp for him. Uh, He sent a a band of thugs to kill me while I slept in bed with my wife, his own daughter. If he knew I was talking to you right now, 
If he knew I was talking to you right now, Jonathan, I'd be a goner. Don't be so naive, man. There's hardly a step between me and death, he says. So here's the $64,000 question. If, in his mind, he was basically a dead man walking, what then did he do with his very next steps? What did he do with the very few steps that he had left? That's what we're going to discover in Psalm 57, okay? Which means, you know I'm going to ask you the very same question, right? Some point in this sermon, I'm going to ask you the same question. What would you do if you knew that you were mere steps away from your physical demise? That you could die at any second, okay? What are you going to do about it? Whatever the circumstances, what are you going to do next? That's what I'm going to ask you. And I think there are, there are several principles that we can take from David's time in this cave here. Okay? We heard a big one last week. That David had godly confidence in this cave. How? Because he knew God. Remember? This I know that God is for me. How do you know that, David? How could you possibly be sure of that? Answer, because I believe his word. Because I believe in the promises of his word. I know that God is for me because I know God's character, that he never lies, for example, that he never goes back on the promises that he makes to his covenant people, that he is a covenant-keeping God. As we just read in the opening text, his steadfast love endures forever. It is great to the skies. I know this to be true about God Almighty because I know God Almighty. I know him personally because he has revealed himself to me. He has revealed himself to me in his word, which I praise. And now, now I can have this sweet communion in a cave and pledge to give my praise to his holy name for the rest of my days on earth, whether few or many, leading us to our second and third principles and our second and third points in your outlines. God has preserved my life up to this point, David says. He has afforded me, though unworthy as I am, the opportunity to flee from my oppressors, from Nob to Gath. Now here in this cave, I have fled. He has allowed my life to be spared to this point. He has given me godly confidence in crazy times. He has given me the the ability to trust in the promises of his word. And because of this, I will now offer both my prayer and my praise to him while also conveniently recording the entire process. Very convenient. I will make it a psalm of instruction so that the Lord's people can be strengthened for many, many generations to come. Now, I don't know if David was consciously thinking about the generations to come here when he wrote this, but I do think it's remarkable that here we all are being strengthened by these very words some 3,000 years later. Isn't that amazing? Was it amazing to you or no? Oh, good. It's amazing to me too, because it sounds like divine providence, doesn't it? So that's the question that we're going to ask ourselves from the very start. What did David do with the next steps of his life, which, in his mind, could very well have been his last steps. First, he recognized he had been spared by his Lord, preserved by his Lord. He reminded himself of the promises of his Lord, and then he prayed to his Lord. 
Look at verse 1.2 in your outline. Be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me, he said. Prayer should be the, a constant practice in the life of every believer. Yes, the word. The word is of utmost importance, for it's in the scriptures that we learn about the true character of our God and are thus able to ditch the yoke of this fleeting world system for his yoke, which is easy and light. But this sweet communion, this sweet discourse with God, whether in audible or silent ex- expressions of of our dependence upon him is where our faith is really demonstrated, okay? Where it's really bolstered and and reinforced. It comes through prayer, which is exactly what we'll see happen with David here in a minute. First of all, let me ask you a question. Do any of you who call yourselves Christians, after praying to your heavenly Father in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, ever feel as though what you just did was a waste of your time? Do you ever feel like prayer to your Lord is time wasted, that you could have been doing something better with your time? We said it last week. For the true believer in Christ, time in the holy and inspired scriptures will never be time wasted, for this is how our master speaks to us. This is how our master speaks to us. Well, the same can be said for that sweet hour of prayer, okay? Time spent praying to our Lord, bearing our souls before the one who looks into the depths of our hearts will never be time wasted. These are necessities in the life of every believer. Prayer and the word. Prayer and the word. To us, they're even uh, more important than bread and water in reality. My encouragement to you this morning would be to pray much, pray often, and continually bear your hearts before their maker. Now, I've mentioned several times from this pulpit how I, when I was a new believer, I listened to an old preacher on the radio named Charles Stanley. You ever heard that name, Charles Stanley? Now, while I didn't agree with everything he said, and uh, even more so today, uh, his son Andy is a wolf, by the way, just to let you know. While I didn't agree with everything he he always said, I was both challenged and edified by his exhortation to put my heart on the operating table of God. That's what he said. I thought that was great counsel. He said something to the effect of, lay it all out there in full transparency. He knows it anyway. Both agreeing with God about the contents of every nook and cranny and then confessing to God all that lies within your heart, whether good or bad. And should there be anything that needs to be removed in utter humility, step back and allow the great physician to go to work on it, to go to work on your heart, no matter what the cost is to you. I thought that was wise counsel. He said something like that. Uh, Pray much. Pray often. Pray in full transparency. To try to withhold anything from the Lord would be an exercise in futility because he knows everything anyway. So why not just agree with him and lay it all out there for him? If there's anything that's not pleasing to him, ask the surgeon to remove it from you. Just like that. I thought that was excellent. Oh, believer, are you weak and heavy laden? Cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. J.C. Ryle said this, uh, we are sometimes tempted to think that we get no good by our prayers and that we may as well give them up altogether. 
Let us resist the temptation. It comes from the devil, he said. Let us believe and pray on against our besetting sins, against the spirit of the world, against the wiles of the devil. Let us pray on and not faint for strength to do duty, for grace to bear our trials, for comfort in every trouble. Let us continue in prayer. Let us be sure that no time is so well spent in every day as that which we spend upon our knees. Jesus hears us, and in his own good time, he will give us an answer. He may sometimes keep us long waiting, but he will never send us empty away. End quote. Praying to God is never a waste of time, whether allowed or continually, silently in your heart. Here David says, Be gracious to me, O God. And then in the first of, can you shut that window? And then in the, brother, thank you so much, Casey. Thank you. That's better. Those are nice windows. Praying is never a waste of time again. Here David says, be gracious to me, O God. And then the first of several repeated phrases, he says it again, be gracious to me. Then he confesses, for my soul takes refuge in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge until destruction passes by. Notice again, my soul takes refuge in you. It doesn't say my soul takes refuge in my wisdom, not in my charm, nor my craftiness, not in my might or the might of many great armies, not even in this hardened rock that surrounds me in this cave, but in you. In the shadow of your wings, I take refuge until destruction passes by. Thank you, brothers. This, of course, is not saying that God is some winged being, but rather it's David's way of communicating in language familiar to his readers how God shares the protective characteristics of his creatures, whether that be wings like an eagle, which carried the Israelites from Egypt, or the mother hen in Jesus' lament over apostate Jerusalem. Yahweh is the ultimate protector of his people, both in an infinite and eternal sense. I ask then, who better to find shelter in? Who better to take refuge in? David says, none other than the Lord God, the Almighty. Let me ask you something this morning. Where do you run for shelter when the storms of this life come, when you're surrounded by enemies on all sides? Where do you run? Do you run to your hobbies? You run to your work? You run to your leisure, to your cell phone? Maybe to the next purchase. Maybe you even run to other people, to your family, to your friends, husbands, wives, girlfriends, boyfriends, to your trusted confidants, or other things in life, any other thing to distract you from the daunting realities of life in this broken world. Some of these things are okay to some extent, but can I encourage you this morning to instead meditate on these words of King David. There is only one who is worthy of fleeing to in desperate times. Even other people will fail you. They will fail you. There is only one. That is the great I am, Yahweh, God Most High. 
That's who David points to in verse 2. I will call to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. Perfect language here. God most high. He is the highest. There is none above the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. There is no other source outside of himself which he depends on or relies upon to sustain himself. Otherwise, as we said in Genesis, that source would be God. But there is no other. He said it himself. Isaiah 46, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. Not the beginning from the end, by the way. The end from the beginning. From ancient times to things which have not yet been done. Saying, my counsel will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Who else can say such things? Answer? Nobody. Not anyone, anywhere, at any other time, past, present, or future. He is truly the Most High God. He is the supreme being. This isn't the first time we've seen David use this title for God. Psalm 17, I will give thanks to Yahweh according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of Yahweh Most High. Why? Verse 2, because he accomplishes all things for me. For me. Now, before the name it and claim it folks start getting all excited, remember, he works all things according to, to his counsel, not our counsel, that his will would be accomplished, not our will. In other words, David is confident that God will accomplish all things for him because in total desperation, he is crying out for divine grace. In other words, he's saying this is a supply and demand thing here. I'm the one in need, and you're the one who has what I need. You're the one who provides the grace. I'm in need of your grace. Therefore, because it's your grace that I require, your will be done. That's what that means. Not my will, but your will be done, Lord. Be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me. Nowhere do we see David crying out with Janice Joplin in the Health Wealth Brigade, Oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? No. Instead, what does he ask for here? What does David long for above all else in these steps between him and death? Verse 3. He will send from heaven and save me. What will he send, David? What's your heart's greatest desire? In what, as far as you're concerned, could be your Last days on earth, what do you want? Do you want the, the throne of Judah? You want, you want the throne of all of Israel? You want more chariots, more servants, a greater army, more horses, more wives, more kids? That, that your name would be great amongst many generations, for, for many generations? What do you want, David? Do you want a better job? Do you want a better house? Do you want better schools? Do you want a nice piece of property on some acreage with a nice lake out back, stock, stock with some 10-pound largemouth bass? What do you want, man? Do you want a nice retirement? Do you want the nicest toys? Do you want the hottest cars, the biggest boat in the neighborhood? How about more prominence in society? You want greater fame? You want greater clout? How about a greater social media following? You want some more Twitter followers there, buddy? Is that what you want? No. Not when there is but a mere step between me and death. 
All of those things that I just listed account for diddly squat when it's all said and done, when you're about to die. Think about that. What do you want, David? Tell us what you want. What, what will God send from heaven to save you? Look for yourselves. End of verse 3. God will send his loving kindness and his truth. His loving kindness and his truth. The chesed. We've talked about so much here at Lakewood Bible Chapel. The steadfast love of the Lord which endures forever and ever. The special love. The loyal loving kindness that Yahweh has for his people. David says he will send his loving kindness and his truth. Oh, his truth. There's an old saying from the earliest roots of this country country here. Uh, give me liberty or give me death. You ever heard those words? Give me liberty or give me death. Now, it may be we, we often cry, give me the truth or give me death. I just want someone, anyone, to tell me the truth. I mean, nobody expected much from Washington, right? We know that. But these past few years, these people just lie through their teeth unashamedly. Oh, the value of truth. Not subjective truth. Not folks making up their own truth as they go along. You know, like, I think I'll be a woman tomorrow truth. But absolute truth. Actual truth. Male and female truth. There's no surer truth, I will, I'm here to tell you, than the truth demonstrated by our Creator, the Lord Most High. And David longs for it. He longs for God's truth. As the truth from above is what allows God's people to stand firm, now fixed firm, uh, have their feet uh, fixed firmly on this foundation below. This is our firm foundation. God's truth. When all around my soul gives way, his truth is all my hope and stay. Right? Of all things David could ask for, he wants God's love, God's truth. These things are sufficient to sustain him in the darkest hours, even when death itself is hardly a step away. I think we can open that window back up. People are getting a little hot. Maybe those doors, you know. Hey, we don't need a new uh, air conditioner. We have God's love and truth. <laughs> All right, let me ask you something, though. Can the same be said of you this morning? Do divine love and truth top your greatest needs and wants list? Did they top the greatest needs and wants list of your life? All day, every day, by the way. Or are you like so many in modern-day American evangelicalism? Uh, God's love only when I need it, and God's truth only when it's convenient. I hope that's not the case for you. I hope you long for divine truth and love as much as David did here. Again, for David, God's love and truth were more than sufficient in this hour. When, as he says in verse 4, my soul is among lions. He says, I'm lying down among those who breathe forth fire. Sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. 
the man's got to sleep here, right? He's only human. God is the only one who never sleeps nor slumbers. David is but a mere mortal. And what he's saying here, when he lies his head down on his rolled-up tunic or robe or maybe a nice smooth stone in this cave, he's laying his head down here not knowing if he will be wakened by a mob of bloodthirsty men. That's what he's saying. But there's another layer here. Yeah, another layer. This goes way deeper than just his physical safety. Just like we learned last week, he's actually dealing with what are the worst kinds of men in all of history. The slander. The slander. That's what this reference to their teeth and tongue implies. These men cut him down with slanderous lies. They, like dragons, uh, like dragons breathe forth a fire which consumes. That's what this means. Their, their tongues consume like a fire. James says the same thing in his epistle. These are devilish Demonic men indeed, men who still walk among us, by the way, maybe even those who profess Christ with their lips, but who seemingly have no problems using those same lips to spew forth their venomous lies and tales. I found it interesting as I read over the accounts of 1 Samuel again, specifically right after David cuts a piece off of Saul's robe as he's relieving himself. That David's first words to the current king are these. Why do you listen to the words of men saying, behold, David seeks to do you evil? Why do you listen to the words of men? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that Yahweh had given you today into my hand in the cave, and some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you, and I said, I will not send forth my hand against my Lord For he is the anointed of Yahweh. Why are you listening to men? Why are you listening to to mere men, to these lying men, these deceptive, disreputable, disgraceful men? Stop listening to men who have a clear agenda for destruction and division, whose reputations precede them everywhere they go. Men who are well known for leaving a trail of slanderous carnage and destruction in their wake. Why do you listen to the words of men? Here in verse 4, David is saying, God, you know these guys. You know the hearts of these wicked men all too well. And on the flip side, you know my heart, Lord. I love this quote by FDR. He once said, I ask you to judge me by the enemies I have made. One more time for the people in the back. I ask you to judge me by the enemies I've made. This may have come from the old Arabian adage, Judge a man by the reputation of his enemies. Here, the reputation of David's enemies is very well known to the one who truly matters to the Lord, which is why up in verse 3 he said, God reproaches my enemies. God knows them. Even if we may not be able to, God knows them, and he defiles them. He he, He taunts them. This word literally could mean slanders them. He slanders them. Though justly, of course. God knows those who trample on me. He knows. He knows. 
David says, they're circling me. Those fire breathers, the men of sharp teeth and sharp tongues, they're after me. But I'm going to sleep now. Not before reminding himself first of the confidence in the Lord in verse 5, followed by one more quick mention of his enemies in verse 6. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. They have set a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit before me. But they themselves have fallen into the midst of it. Selah. In other words, evil brings forth its own destruction. If not in the here and now, in this temporary realm, certainly on judgment day when they stand before their creator. Here, says the, here David says, these wicked men, they fell into their own traps. They fell headlong into the same devices they set up to ensnare me. But the really fascinating part here is, is David's calling for the Lord to glorify himself through it all. Through the pursuits, through the slander, even through the destruction of his enemies. Look at those words again in verse 5. Be exalted above the heavens. This is literally a call for the Lord to assume the position of highest prominence of greatest importance, which he alone is entitled to. This is just David's affirmation of that fact. This is him saying, Make yourself impressive to the world, O Lord, through your dealing with these wicked men, these ravenous sons of men. This reminds me of Jesus' words in John 12 as he fulfilled prophecy by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, kicking off what some have called the the Passion Week, when he said, Now my soul has become dismayed. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Jesus knew full well that some who who now surrounded him chanting, Hosanna in the highest would soon be chanting for his death. Soon they won't be crying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but soon they will be crying, crucify him. His blood be on us and upon our children as he rides in, as he is but a few steps away from his death, yet his face is set toward the cross. His focus is firmly fixed on the glorification of his Father. Again, I ask, can the same thing be said about you? Are you not only willing to live in a way that's honoring and pleasing to your Heavenly Father, but are you also fully prepared to glorify Him in your death? In your death? Now's the time to think about your death. It could come at any second, and how you're going to glorify the Lord in it. I'm always... I always like to think about my heart beating for that next time. I know I've said it before, but you can't cause your heart to beat a next time. You're dependent on something else to sustain your heart. Just like you can't produce the breath that's required to come into your lungs. And then you can't make them, I mean, you can make them bigger and smaller, but ultimately you're dependent on somebody else for that next breath. Do we think about these things or is there a game on it too? I I don't know. Something's more important, I guess. Well, for David, the time for talking about these wicked men has come to an end. 
Now it's time for the real exaltation to begin. Look at verse 7.3 in your outlines. You want to see what true biblical worship looks like? Verse 7, my heart is set, O God, my heart is set. Just like Jesus' face was set toward Jerusalem, David's heart was set on praising God as he was steadfast, firm in his faith. He's basically saying, my faith in Yahweh is sure, it's unshakable. I have an unwavering faith in the goodness of my Creator, in your good character, in the loving kindness that you show toward those who belong to you. Again, I love how he says it twice. Not ten times like they do on Caleb, but twice. First, be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me. Now, my heart is set. Oh God, my heart is set. And then again, I will sing praises. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises. Awake, my glory. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. Usually it's the dawn that awakens us, right? Not in this moment. So full of confident joy is David's heart that he actually becomes the alarm clock for the sun. I can't wait till that big fiery ball raises so I can... Praise Yahweh all the day long. I'm going to wake him up. What we see here, brothers and sisters, what we see is a genuineness of heart. A sincerity of heart. A genuine worship of his creator. How do I know? Because again, David is praising God, rejoicing over the character and nature of God, not in the best of times, but in the darkest of times even calling for the glorification of not himself, but of God in the darkest of time. At first glance at these words, you wouldn't think that he's all alone in some cave desperately pleading for deliverance here. This is a psalm of praise. This is a demonstration of true, heartfelt praise and adoration of God. And again, in the most terrifying of times. These are dark times. These are desperate times. But my heart is set, O God. My heart is set. What is it set on, you ask? What is it set on? A good clue may be the 21 times that the name of God or the pronouns of God are mentioned in this psalm here. This is a theocentric psalm. It's God-centered. It's not man-centered, as we hear in so many songs in contemporary Christian circles today. It's man-centered. I'm not going to rant about it, though. I will not rant We've already got one crier here. We love that sound, by the way. Don't feel like I'm drawing any attention to you. We got another one here. A hearty amen from the back. Can I get $34 going with? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm not going to rant about music. I'm not going to do it. I don't have to. I'll let James Montgomery Boyce do it instead. Brad sent me this last week. I've quoted it before, but Brad sent it, which is why I love serving next to him as an elder. Boyce said this, The great hymns of the church are on the way out. They're not gone entirely, but they are going. And in their place have come trite jingles that have more in common with the contemporary advertising ditties than the Psalms. The problem here is not so much the style of the music, though trite words fit best, best with trite tunes and harmonies. Rather, 
It is with the content of the songs. The old hymns express the theology of the Bible in profound and perceptive ways and with winsome, memorable language. Today's songs are focused on ourselves. They reflect our shallow or non-existent theology and do almost nothing to elevate our thoughts about God. Worst of all are songs that merely repeat a trite idea, word, or phrase over and over again. This was like 30 years ago he said this. It's gotten so much worse. Songs like this are not worship. Boom. He said it. Songs like this are not worship, though they may give the churchgoer a religious feeling. They are mantras, which belong more in a gathering of new agers than among the worshiping people of God. End quote. A hearty amen as well. That's not David's pattern of worship. (laughs) Again, observe the theocentric nature of this psalm. Look for yourselves. Look in your own Bibles. Verse 1, O God, in you, your wings. Verse 2, God most high. Verse 3, to God, he will. He reproaches him. God will send his loving kindness, his truth. Verse 5, be exalted above the heavens, O God. Your glory, not my glory, your glory. Verse 7, O God. Verse 9, you, O Lord, to you. Verse 10, for your loving kindness is great. Verse 11, be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory, not my glory, be above all the earth. This is true biblical worship. Worship, by the way, which far exceeds merely musical worship, which is important to be sure. But musical worship is not the only form of worship. That's why I don't call the singing time alone worship, or the musicians the worship team. Because everything we do here this morning is worship. All believers make up the worship team. We're all the worship team right now. The preaching of the word is worship, as is the hearing of the word, the praying, the fellowshipping, the taking of the Lord's Supper, the serving, the giving, the greeting, the child care even, setting up the elements, running the AV, taking out the trash, preparing the food, making the coffee, the come on nows, and the amens. It's all worship of the Lord Most High. The praying for the saints at home when you're not able to make it to uh, Sunday morning fellowship is, is even considered worship. And yes, the music too. Music is worship too. Musical worship. But it's all worship and should all have one goal in the end, the exaltation and glorification, not of self, but of God. David's goal here is not self-exaltation or experience even. I know that's a big one. I want to get my experience. That's not his goal. It's that the name of the Lord Most High would be praised among the masses, and not even just among the Jews, not even just among his own kinsmen, but in verse 9, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among all the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, not just Israel. 
He's looking forward to a day when Yahweh's name will be lifted up far beyond Judah, far beyond Israel, far beyond the country of the Philistines, to the very ends of the earth, the nations, plural, leading some to believe that this is a royal psalm, even a prophetic psalm pointing to the end of the age. But why, David? Why? Why do you long to give thanks and praise to God among the nations? Why? Tell us. Why? Verse 10. I praise him for his loving kindness, that same loyal love that Yahweh has for those who are his, both home and abroad. For your loving kindness is great to the heavens, your truth to the skies. There it is again. Love and truth. Love and truth. Truth and love. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. Genesis 1.1, the heavens and the earth, above all creation. This is an all-encompassing prayer here. Lord, may your glory, your majestic nature, your perfect character, may your holy name be exalted, lifted up on high, above literally everything else in all of creation, as it should be. And as it is, this is David's prayer given to the choir director to be put to music in the sanctuary of God, where I'm sure it was accompanied by much singing with lyres and harps, most of all, sincerity of heart, hearts that are set, O oh God, hearts that are set on you. Can we say the same thing today? Let me just say one more thing about musical worship as we wrap up here. We're very blessed at Lakewood. We're blessed to be in a place that places a great emphasis on musical worship. The Lord has smiled upon us by giving us saints who are interested in doctrinally sound, theologically rich hymns and songs. Noel does a great job. As do the musicians at diverting the attention from themselves and directing our focus to where it belongs, making way for the lead instrument of this place, which is the collective voices of the congregation. So I would encourage your soul this morning to sing unashamedly to the glory of your Lord. Sing praises to his holy name for what's been done for you through Christ. I would encourage your soul to sing out with all sincerity and with a heart that is set, Firmly fixed upon what you know to be true about your Lord. He is truly worthy of our praise. Amen? Amen. So, we've seen the preservation. We've seen the prayer. We've seen the praise. Finally, I want to remind you of the ultimate motivation for it all, which is the presence. David knows full well that whatever happens to him on earth, he will be immediately in the presence of his Lord in paradise and heaven forevermore. Well, he anticipated this very thing in Psalm 16. In your presence is fullness of joy, he said. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. And in Psalm 23, he says, that's where I'm going to be, at his right hand. Surely goodness and lovingness will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Just like all the Old Testament saints, had David been killed this night in this cave, he would have immediately gone into the presence of his Lord, into paradise, immediately into the presence of this living God. David would have entered immediately into life after death, eternal life 
after physical death, in the presence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, which is why he ends the psalm with a declaration of praise. So again, I will ask, what about you? Think about that moment you die. Think about all of eternity thereafter. Death is coming, my friends. Are you aware of the reality that your very next step could be your last step? It could. I'm not, I'm not sure we think about it enough in this world. There's so many distractions, so many shiny things that divert our attention away from the, what's really important. Are you aware, first of all, of the reality of your own mortality? And then the very real possibility that your, your life on this earth could be over before you lay your head upon your pillow tonight. Do you think about it? Please think about it. Because you're not dead yet, are you? Is anybody dead in here? Can you raise your hand? No, because you're dead. You're not dead yet. Which means he has spared your life up until this moment. He has spared you. He has preserved your life for a reason. Perhaps just so you can hear these words of exhortation and encouragement to not waste your steps. Don't waste any more steps. Don't waste any more of the the precious steps on the trivial things of this temporary and fleeting life. But instead, let everything you do be a reflection of the faith that God has graciously granted to you if you are one of his. Ask him this morning to set your heart on the things above where he is, where you too will someday be, again, if you truly belong to him. Will you think of these words uh, of David as you leave this place today? Will you do that? Will you meditate upon them? Maybe even make, it, make them your own this evening? I trust that you will. I want to close our time today by reminding you of the only firm foundation in this life, the only solid rock by which our feet can be planted firmly upon, not only for life in this world, but for life in the world to come. The only way, the only way for you to have a heart that is set upon the things above is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. The one who was delivered into the hands of wicked men, who was crushed, who was killed, who was consumed by a pack of rabid, wicked, slanderous, sinful men, who, but who was triumphantly raised from the dead. Raised from the dead, having conquered sin and death itself, having been vindicated by the same Heavenly Father who delivered him up as a perfect sacrifice to pay the price of and bear the penalty of sin for all who would but believe in him and call upon his name alone for salvation. If you never have, I would invite you this morning to cry out to him. To ask that he would be gracious to you, a sinner. That he would give you uh, the ability to turn from your sin, to repent of your sin, to turn from this rotten, evil, temporary, fleeting world system and turn to him by faith alone and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ alone. I would invite you to ask him to, 
grant you eternal life in his presence forevermore. And I would invite you to spend the rest of your days on this earth and all of eternity thereafter offering praise and thanksgiving to his holy name for what's been done for you through the Lord Jesus Christ. I bid you come to him this morning. I bid you come to the Lord Most High this morning. I bid you come to the Father through Jesus the Son. Give him all the praise and all the glory for the great things he has done. Amen? Amen. Let's pray now and we'll have Noel and the music team come up and lead us in musical worship, which we are very grateful for. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the amazing grace that's been extended to us here who believe. We know that it was through no doing of our own. It wasn't through our good deeds outweighing our bad deeds. It wasn't through the things we do or do not do, but it was only by your sovereign grace alone. And for that, we give you all the praise and all the glory, and it's a delight to be able to do so. So we lift up these words to you now and just ask that you bring glory to your holy name because of it. We love you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.